Nice to meet you and thank you, Blake, and thank you, Chaffee Crossing, and, and everyone for having me. It's a delight to be with you. Thank you guys for coming out on a Saturday morning uh, to sit in a church building and fellowship together and hear from God's word. What an encouragement it is to be together with other believers in the Lord and, and share the unity that we have in Christ. Uh, my first time in the state of Arkansas, and I get to share it with you all. What a joy. Um, thank you, Blake, for the, for the warm introduction, for, for organizing this event. I love the, the heart behind these, these Saturday workshops that you guys have been doing. Um, and I want you to imagine with me dinner time in my household. If you were to come in my house about 5.30, we have a small house, and the, the kitchen's right at the center. That's why we chose the house that, that we live in, because the kitchen is at the center where the, where the food is made, where the table is, where we sit down. Dinner time is a, is a big time in my family. Like Blake said, I've got two little kids so I've been working in the front room, I've been doing the work from home thing, and my wife has been cooking and cleaning and taking care of all of her different responsibilities, and my daughter has been doing her ballet practice around the living room, and my son has got all his Thomas the Tank engines out, and the crayons are out, and the craziness is happening. We've all been doing our individual things, and dinner time is when we, we come together, and we try to take a breath and pause and talk about our day and enjoy a meal. And the fact that we share this meal or try to each day of the week is part of what makes us who we are as a family, right? We have a particular family culture. If you were anthropologists from Mars and you descended as aliens to planet Earth to investigate what is going on with this, these human beings and try to figure out what makes these human beings tick, you'd probably notice that most human beings, at least in America, at least in Nashville, Tennessee, tend to eat dinner at a certain amount of time. So you'd see all the different similarities, okay? They, they put food in their mouths and this is how they chew it. But if you came to, if, you know, you as a Martian came to my house, you would also want to notice the things that make us unique and different from other humans. So you would notice, oh, well, the Merkers, we, my wife and I grew up on Long Island, New York. And so my wife's Italian-American, and she makes better lasagna than everyone in the world. And so that's what you would notice. Ah, they have superior lasagna. <laughs> they, they drink sparkling water because that's what they grew up drinking. And um, they have certain inside jokes. And they have certain traditions. You, you would notice that our family prays. and We thank the Lord Jesus Christ for our food and we, we try to talk with our children about God and uh, we have certain family traditions and routines. So what we do when we gather for dinner shapes who we are as a family, but who we are as a family shapes what we do when we gather for dinner. Do you, do you see? It's a cyclical thing. When we gather, it makes us who we are. But who we are shapes the fact that we gather. It's different when I eat dinner alone. I could have my wife's lasagna heated up in the oven, and it tastes it just, actually, sometimes it even tastes better the second day. I don't know, the flavors kind of marinate overnight and take it out of the fridge. It's, it's just as good. So you say, what's the difference, Matt? Why don't you just eat by yourself? You can have the same lasagna. You'll get the same nourishment to your belly. Well, the reason is it wouldn't bind me to the people I love. It wouldn't connect us. It wouldn't make us one, even if we're all eating the same lasagna in different rooms of the house. And I would say, even if we were all eating the same lasagna, 
and watching other, each other eat it on Zoom, it wouldn't be the exact same experience as gathering at the table. Because when you're at the table, you, you see each other's body language. And when you're at the table together, you have a conversation before and after dinner. You see where I'm going with this. When you're at church together, you see each other's body language. You run into one another in the bathroom and you chat and you, you, you pray with one another around coffee in the, in the hallway. There's something about being together physically that makes a church who we are. And who we are as a church you know, shapes what we do when we gather. I've been thinking and writing about the gathering of the local church for a while now. I never really expected it to become a sort of hot topic that was debated. But enter the coronavirus, and all of a sudden there's lots of questions. Must a church gather to be a church? What if we all met online? Because I'll be honest, I love my church, y'all, but when, there was a season when my church could not meet because we, we met in a school, and the school wouldn't let us meet there anymore during the pandemic. And so we had, we, we did something on Zoom. I'm not going to call it church, but the pastor taught us over Zoom, and I think that was helpful, and we, he led us in prayer over Zoom. But the coffee was better when I made it at my house. I mean, I, 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 you know, watching that in our pajamas, eating my wife's pancakes, you know, it, it was convenient. And so people have asked these questions. Why, why waste the money on gas to drive to church? Why, why should we gather when we can use some of the technology that we have and everyone can just hang out in your pajamas at home? So all of a sudden, these questions start arising. And so what I want to do is I want to take us back to God's word and see that the Lord's plan for us as the family of God is that gathering is not just a, a duty or an obligation. It's a privilege. It's a delight. It makes us who we are. So this first talk has two sec sections. First, why gathering is so essential. So if you're a note taker, Bl Blake has, everyone look at these awesome bulletins that have been made for this. Th these things are fancy. They like fold. They've got staples in them. So he's given you a whole page here. The first section is why the gathering's essential. And then the second, I also want to think about why it matters that God is the one who gathers us. That God gathers us and works in our midst when we meet for church. So that's the second section. First, first part, why is the gathering essential? And I think if you were to survey churchgoers and ask them, why do you go to church on a Sunday? If you just surveyed people in America, you'd get a, a lot of different answers. Some might say, uh, I go to church because of what I get out of it. I get an inspiring message. I enjoy the singing. I, I go because I like it. Others might focus on their duty. Well, I go because it's the right thing to do. It's the moral thing to do. Or it's, it's what I'm supposed to do. Others might cite tradition. Well, I go to church because it's what I've always done and it's what my mother did and my grandmother did. Others might cite desire. I go to church because I want to. There, there's something in me that, that yearns to go. And you can see, you know, some of these answers are better than others, right? But for all who are truly born again, who know and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's actually a deeper answer of why we go to church. Theologically, we go to church because we are the church. And the church is an assembly. So meeting isn't just something churches do. 
a meeting is something that a church is. And that's what we want to think about. We see this throughout Scripture. So let's think about the Old Testament. We know that God rescued his people out of Egypt. And he brought them into his promised land. And before they got into the promised land, Moses preached God's law to them again a second time in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 9.10, he refers back to the moment when God gathered them at Mount Sinai and gave them his law. That's part of how he made them his special people. We're going to think more about that tomorrow from, from Psalm 147. And Moses is recalling that day and he says, that day was the day of assembly. That's the phrase he uses in Deuteronomy 9, 10, the day of assembly, meaning the day that God brought you guys together and he did something amazing. And when you look throughout the Old Testament, there's several other places where the nation, the whole people gathers as an assembly before the Lord. He is their God. He is their true king. He is their authority. And he assembles them at key junctures in their history it happens in Judges chapter two, 20 and in 1 Kings chapter 8, 1 Chronicles chapter 28. Basically, God is showing the world who his people are by having them meet before him, before his special presence in Jerusalem. My family wouldn't be the same if we never gathered around that dinner table. In the same way, God called his people, though they were all separate and lived in different places, to gather as one. That's part of who Old Testament Israel was. Now, if you fast forward to the New Testament, when we look at the New Testament authors, I'm going to teach you a Greek word here. The, the word ecclesia in New Testament Greek means assembly. It means a meeting. In fact, in Acts 19, when there's a huge commotion and a huge gathering of, of all different types of people, not just Christians, it, uh, Luke, the author of Acts, calls that an ecclesia. That's an assembly. It wasn't a church meeting, but it was an ecclesia. It was a meeting of a whole bunch of different people. When applied to the church, this, this term ecclesia, assembly, carries all these rich connotations we've seen in the Old Testament of God assembling his people together to stand together as one before him, to stand together as a witness to the world. So what does the New Testament teach us about the local church assembly? I want to walk through five very quick observations. The first is this. We see that, see that churches, ecclesias, regularly gather. That's just what they do. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses phrases like, when you come together as a church. 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, Or in 1 Corinthians 14, 23, he says, the whole church comes together. So churches regularly meet. That's just a basic thing. We're, we're going back to basics here. It's good stuff. Number two, a church gathering is a distinct event. It's different than when a bunch of Christians get together to play football or have a game night. Those are great things to do. But Paul will use a phrase like, in church... And when he's talking to the Corinthians about some arguments they were having about what, what are the most important spiritual gifts. I have a spiritual gift that's better than yours. No, I have. I speak in tongues. No, I do this. Paul instructs him and he says, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. 1 Corinthians 14, 19. Uh, he goes on in verse 28. If there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church. So Paul has a category of Outside church, regular life, and in church, when the church meets. And if you want to talk about speaking in tongues, we can chat about that over coffee later. I'm not going to 
belabor that issue right now. Number three, we see even large churches met as one in the New Testament era. We know that thousands of believers were part of the church in Jerusalem in the early chapters of Acts. Yet we see in Acts 5.12, they met, quote, all together in Solomon's portico. Number four, the New Testament writers are constantly telling churches to do things that you can only do by meeting. So just a quick, quick, quick sample. You know, Paul says in Colossians 3.16 that they need to teach and admonish one another singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You've got to remember this was about 60 or 70 A.D. They didn't have Zoom. So when he says get together and teach one another by singing, the only way they could do that was by meeting. <laughs> he tells 1 Timothy to prioritize the public reading of Scripture. Public meaning it's, it's, it's in an open place. It's a, a meeting that's accessible. He tells him in 1 Corinthians 11 to eat bread and drink the cup together to commemorate the Lord's death until he returns. Uh, I was going to read Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, but, but Blake already read it for us, where the author to the, to the Hebrews says not neglecting to meet together. Paul encourages the Christians at Rome, which was a diverse group of those from Greek and Gentile backgrounds and those from Jewish backgrounds, and he says Greek, from your different cultural backgrounds, Greet one another with a holy kiss. You can't do that on Zoom. Uh, we, we might greet one another with a holy side hug or, or elbow bump in, in the COVID days. But there is something about us coming together and showing each other actual physical affection as brothers and sisters in Christ. So some of these things can take place in small groups. They can take place in your Tuesday morning Bible study or prayer meeting. Uh, and some of these activities can be approximated on Zoom with, with some spiritual benefit. That's true. But the New Testament pattern clearly shows that the normal practice of the church is to meet for these embodied acts of exalting God and edifying one another. That's the fourth thing, these various activities that the, the New Testament authors tell churches to do. And the fifth thing is, is one very specific activity, number five, church discipline. When the New Testament talks about the sad situations when someone is professing to be a Christian with their mouth, but they're denying it by their life, consistently and unrepentantly living in sin, the, the, the New Testament gives us instructions about what to do in those very sad and often very complex situations. And in, in Matthew 18, Jesus envisions the church as a whole, the ecclesia, he says, speaking to the person in question. Jesus says in order to do this, they are to be gathered in his name. When you are gathered, he says. And Paul echoes this language when he tells the Corinthians how to practice church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, when you are gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus. So those are just kind of five different data points. And as we look through the New Testament, we see Paul and the other New Testament authors expecting that churches gather regularly. And I, 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 what I want us to see in all this is this beautiful picture of what the church is. A church is a blood-bought people. We've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We've been saved from the worship of idols. All of us are idolaters in various ways and in our sinful fallen nature. We worship other things and we worship ourselves. We've been saved from that and transformed into worshipers of the one true God. So that's what, that's what a church is. It's a blood-bought group of former idolaters who are now worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're set apart from the world. 
They're committed to serving one another, to loving their neighbors, and they do all that in part, normally, by meeting together. That's how they come together to worship the true God. That's how they come together to love one another and to love their neighbors. So here's what's amazing. If you're part of Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, if you're part of another local church in this area, I want you to, I want you to see this. Coming to church is one of the most powerful things you do every week. It might feel routine. It might feel hard. It might sometimes feel boring. But when you come to church, God is up to something. He is doing something supernatural in bringing your church together. The world doesn't see it. But we know from God's word that the gathering of his people is extremely special. And you have the privilege of being part of it. That is amazing. Now, uh, uh, of course, a church is more than a gathering. The church gathers and then scatters again. You're still part of your local church, you know, the rest of the week when you go out and you care for your children or you work your job or you're involved civically in, in the neighborhood, in the city. And we, we might imagine, you know, a husband and wife, if one of them is deployed with the military and is away, if they're separated for many months at a time, they're still married, even though they cannot gather in the same place. And so even if there is an unusual time when a church cannot gather for some reason, hmm, what, what would a reason like that be? Oh, maybe a global pandemic. You know, the, the church is still the church, but we should pray that those times be very unusual and abnormal. That's not the norm. When it's safe and healthy to meet, churches should find a way to meet. In this sense, a church is a lot more like the players on a basketball team than the fans who go to a, to a basketball game. Somebody told me there's a Razorbacks basketball game and football game. Today. Is that true? Okay, so you got, you got two big games happening. And if you're a sports fan, hopefully this, this makes sense. Here's the thing. It's fun being a fan. I mean, I, I, I like sports. You know, you, you go, you enjoy the game, you turn up, you watch the thing. And here's the thing. You notice some fans will wear the jersey, right? You, you might wear your favorite player's jersey and number, and you, you, you turn up. You, in, in that sense, you feel like you're kind of part of the team. But, and actually the pandemic showed us this, you don't need the fans there to play the game. The team can turn up and actually play the game, and it can count in the record books even if there's no fans. It might not be as fun, but the actual game can happen Coming as a fan is optional. You pay for it, you come to be entertained, you have a nice time, you go home. It's actually quite passive. Some fans are very active, I know. They, they cheer and they hoot and holler. But when you are a player, you're expected to be there. And when you are a player and put on that team's jersey, what happens when you step onto the court is of special significance. In fact, there's even an intricate system of plays or we might say rituals or liturgies that happen when a team takes the field. There's a particular order of things. There's a particular hierarchy. There's different roles that they play. It's kind of like Paul saying there's different members of the body and you each need to be there and you each have a role to play. And so when you're a member of the team, you still represent that team when you go out in the week and you do your homework as a student or you go shop at the same grocery store as everyone else in the town. But then, in order for the team to do its work, the team members need to gather on the field. And so, 
as believers, we are much more like the members of the team than we are like the fans in the, in the stands. So let's think about a couple of encouraging implications here. Why this is so important, why this matters. Two things we want to think about. First, the assembly makes the church visible to itself. The assembly makes the church visible to itself. Here's what I mean. Uh, growing up, my mom uh, is from Minnesota originally, from a very large Polish family. And so uh, often we would go to Minnesota in the summers for family reunions, the Lebendowski family reunion. And what do you do at a family reunion in Minnesota? You sit by the lake and you talk, and your uncles fish. And it's great. What, what they would want to do at the end of the family reunion is take a picture of everyone, all these different cousins. Oh, you betcha, here's her cousins from Nebraska, and here's her cousins from northern Minnesota and southern Minnesota and all this kind of stuff. And it's great, and you know, I'm meeting all these people I'm related to. And so everyone tries to squeeze in, and someone goes up real high and takes a picture of the whole family. Why? Because we want to see who we are. This is a special thing. We all share the, the same Polish ancestors. What a, what a neat picture that we're all together. Well, similarly, when a church gathers for corporate worship, the congregation is presented to itself. You get to see that snapshot. You become aware of who you are. So on Sundays at 1030, my congregation, Edgefield Church in East Nashville, appears. The church becomes visible in our building that's about 100 years old, and that is very cold because the heat doesn't work. But we're still there. And I see faces and names as this happens. I see David, who's a professional musician. He was not a Christian. In fact, what he did is he played piano at different churches that would hire him on Sunday morning because Sundays was a work day for him. That's how he made a buck. And one day he was playing piano at, a, at some church in town and he heard the gospel and got saved. And so as our church meets, now he's joined our church and he, he doesn't do that anymore. He just comes to our church. And I see him, and this is someone who a few years ago didn't know Christ, and he's singing, Christ the Lord is risen today. And I look over and I see a family who has a three-year-old son with leukemia. And they're finding it hard to sing, but they're here. And they're singing, and the pastor's leading the whole church in prayer for their sick son uh, during the, the moment of, of prayer. And I, I look over and I see someone in the very back corner, a friend of mine, who has been stuck in some really difficult sin. And he didn't feel like coming. He didn't want anyone to see him, but he came. And he comes up to me after church and says, wasn't that sermon encouraging? And he wants to pray for me. And I know these people's names. I don't know all of them perfectly. I don't know every detail of their life. And are they ever sick or are they ever away on work or vacation? Sure, but normally I can expect to see them there. And what does that do? It increases my affection for them. It increases their affection for me and for one another. This is the family that is committed to help one another follow Christ together, whatever may come, whether it's persecution, whether it's cancer, whether it's miscarriage, whether it's addiction, whether it's depression. I'm going to see them at the family dinner table once a week and, and more often than that but mainly at this one time where we see one another and that reinvigorates our commitment internally as a church. If you've been at a wedding, one of my favorite things at a wedding, when the bride comes in, of course, I always 
look at the bride. She's beautiful. It's a wonderful moment. But I love looking at the groom. Do you? I love looking at his eyes when he sees her come in. That's, that's my favorite thing. And, he, you know, he, you see him swelling at the sight of, of his bride. That's what happens when the church meets. We behold the, the bride of Christ. And Christians are hard to love. Christians are sinners. I know because I'm a Christian, but I'm still a sinner. I know I'm hard to love. But yet we see these people who are hard to love, but they are so lovable because God has loved them first. He has made them lovely in Christ. And so our hearts swell in love when the church meets. That's the first implication that gathering makes the church visible to itself. And that fills us with love for one another as the church. The second implication is that gathering makes the church visible to the watching world. It's not just that we see ourselves, it's that the world sees us as well. Ephesians 3.10, turn to Ephesians 3.10. This is, this is a verse you want to get to know. I think it's a verse that, that oftentimes gets overlooked. It's a really important verse about the church. and it, it should help give you a lot of confidence in what God is doing through your congregation. Paul is talking about how the Lord has made him a minister of the gospel to bring the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. And God's plan from all ages was, verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So in the context of the book of Ephesians, Paul is answering the question, why was it God's eternal plan to bring Jew and Gentile together in the church? And in chapter 3, verse 10, he gives his answer. That through the unity of the church, God would display his wisdom even to the heavenly and spiritual powers and authorities looking on. The angels are looking at Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, and they're amazed at the wisdom of God. That's part of God's plan. He's displaying our unity to the watching world. That happens in the universal church, but it happens in the local church. Uh, thinking about, again about my own congregation, I think about a young married couple, a white man who's married to an Asian American woman, maybe in their 30s, but there's an older African American single man in the congregation who always sits with them. They give him a ride to church because he's got an injury, he's not able to drive, and he's kind of like a part of their family. And it's, it's not a family that makes sense to the world, but it makes sense in the Lord. I see people who are fans of hip-hop and country and rock, and they're all lifting their voices and singing enthusiastically a song that doesn't fit any of those genres. They're singing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a medieval tune written by Martin Luther 500 years ago. But they're singing it, and they seem to like it well enough. Well, the world can't explain that, but you can explain that in the Lord. I see believers who came to different conclusions about important and complicated questions. Questions like what to do about wearing masks or getting a vaccine. Questions like who to vote for when it doesn't seem like either candidate is really ideal. They came to different conclusions, but they're still sharing the Lord's Supper together. And it's not just that they're sharing the Lord's Supper together. They're, they're going out and for 45 minutes after church, they're sharing coffee together and they're sharing life together even though they have different views on some consequential things. So this sort of gathering should really leave the world speechless. 
where can you find such a bizarre mix of people all praising the same triune God? Why is that? Maybe there's something to this good news of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who's brought these people together. And even in a context that looks more culturally homogenous, if everyone within 50 miles looks like one another, well then the church still has an opportunity to display this kind of supernatural unity through the depth of love and care that people give to one another. And they put that on display by meeting together regularly. I love this quote from David Clarkson, a 17th century pastor. I think he puts into words well why it's such a delight to meet with God's people. He says, the Lord engages to himself to let forth, as it were, a stream of his comfortable, quickening presence to every particular person that, that fears him. But when many of these particulars join together to worship God, then these several streams are united and meet in one, so that the presence of God, which enjoyed in private, is but a stream, in public becomes a river, a river that makes glad the city of God. And, and the point that he's making is that all believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. Each of us individually is a temple for the Spirit. But when a lot of Spirit-filled people get together, that is a special delight. It fills us with love for one another, and it's part of our witness to the watching world. So that's the sort of internal implication and external implication. And, and for all of you, let me just speak to the members of Chaffee Crossing. I, I hope that that's your experience here as a congregation. I know that getting to church is sometimes hard. I've got two little kids. I don't, they don't seem to have a problem going to school during the week, but getting to church on Sunday, it's different. But you know what? I, I think that makes sense in a way because of spiritual warfare. Satan doesn't want you coming to Chaffee Crossing on a Sunday morning. He doesn't want you here. But the Lord has brought you here. And I hope you've tasted the sweetness of that river. I hope you've tasted the delight of congregational singing. And the comfort of corporate prayer. And the power of sharing the Lord's Supper together. And the strength that comes from hearing Blake and other elders preach the word faithfully. Doesn't it just strengthen your bones to go into the week having heard the word read and preached faithfully? That is a delightful thing. We need it. It's good for us to learn to love one another and to have that witness to the world strengthened. So that's why we meet. We meet because we are a meeting. And when we meet, it is good for us. It is good for our witness. So that's the first part of this talk. You all ready to move to part two? Second thing, I also want to think about why it matters that God is the one who gathers us. It's common to hear people describe worship as our response to God. And that's very much true. In worship, we respond to who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. But it's not the whole picture. Before we respond to God, God first works in us. We gather by his grace. We wouldn't gather if it were up to us. We, you know, in, in our sinful state, we wouldn't worship him. He works first. He takes the initiative. He draws us. Think about Romans 12.1. This is one of the most famous verses on worship in the New Testament. Why don't you turn there? Just a note about the word worship 
oftentimes when you talk to people about worship, they think, oh yeah, you're talking about the singing in church. How was the worship today? By which sometimes I mean, you know, how, how was the music? I got news for you. Worship is all of life. Worship is our response to a God who is worthy. That's where the word worship comes from. Ascribing worth to God. And Romans 12.1 very clearly tells us to live our whole lives to give worth and glory and honor to God. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Not present your songs for 20 minutes on Sunday morning. Not present just your Sundays to God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Get up on the altar and offer your whole life to him. And so this means we're called to glorify God in everything we do. We're called to work our jobs to the glory of God. Raise your kids to the glory of God. Make your kids a peanut butter sandwich to the glory of God. Do the dishes to the glory of God. Fill your car with gas to the glory of God. Sleep to the glory of God. So that's all of life worship. Within all of life worship, there's gathered worship or corporate worship. That's what we do when we meet on Sundays. And that's what this time is mainly thinking about. And then within corporate worship, there's worship through preaching and worship through song and worship through prayer. And so when we think about the corporate gathering, we want to think about how it's not just our idea to come, and it's not that we come in our strength, but that it's God's idea and that he's the one who brings us here. So yes, worship is our response to God. We see that in, in Romans 12, 1, but look at the previous verse. Look at Romans eleven thirty six, For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So yes, our worship is to God. We give God worship. We want to give him glory and praise because of his perfections, his character, his love that he's shown to us. But the worship we give him also comes from him and through him. So that's what we want to think about. To use Paul's wording from Philippians 2.13, it is God himself who is working in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. To put it as strongly as I could, I would say worship is God's work first before it is ours. God the Father gives us the gift of honoring him in and through our mediator, God the Son. By the power of God's own spirit, our worship originates in the triune God and it resounds to the glory of the triune God. So again, I'll invite you into my little house in Nashville and, and picture us now on Christmas morning, okay? Seven-year-old Lena and three-year-old Isaiah can't wait to give presents to mommy and daddy. But seven-year-old Lena and three-year-old Isaiah don't have any money. And they don't know how to go to the mall or to sign into Amazon to buy Christmas gifts, but yet they have gifts, they, ha they can't wait to give mommy a, a beautiful gold necklace and to give daddy a shiny new pair of a uh, pack of guitar strings. Well, how did they get these gifts to give to their parents? Well, their parents gave them the gifts. I gave them the necklace to give to their mom, and she gave them the guitar strings to give to me. But that doesn't make us any less glad to receive the gifts. And it doesn't make them any less sincere in giving them. So 
They didn't make those guitar strings or necklace. They didn't even buy them, but they can still give it to us sincerely. You see where I'm going here? Our worship is a gift that we receive from God. He gives gives us voices to sing to him. He gives us minds to understand and respond to his word. He gives us this gift of being able to experience his presence together when we gather. And then we give it all back to him. We, we, We reflect it back to him for his glory. As the theologians put it, the triune God is both the chief subject and the chief object of our worship. Subject meaning he's the agent that makes it happen. He's the director of our worship. He, he is the worship leader. <laughs> you may have a worship leader in your church, and that's fine. But there is one true worship leader, capital W, capital L. He's making it happen, but he's also the object of our He's the recipient. We give our worship to him because he is the one who is worthy. It's common to speak of a church gathering as a worship service. Have you ever thought about that? How is the worship service today? Who's being served? Ooh, this is why it's such a rich phrase. I love it when things have double meanings because we are gathering as service to God. We are called to be God's servants. Everything we do, he is our master and Lord. And so when we worship, we are serving him. That's true. But think about it the other way around. God is serving us. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And do you see what this means for how we experience church. God is ministering to us. When you come to church, he is nourishing you and comforting you and strengthening you and reminding you of his grace. So going to church is not like when you decide to go to a concert because you want to have a cool experience. It's not like when you decide to go to a lecture because you want to have your mind stimulated. It's not like deciding to go to a social club or a game night because you want to connect with other people. Actually, it's more like when you are summoned to something. You have been summoned by God and he draws you to a banquet table where he has prepared a feast and he's going to nourish you. And when you go to a great feast that a chef has prepared... You notice how you get to enjoy the great food, but who gets the glory? The chef does. Wow, what an amazing dish. You created this? Where did you get these ingredients? The chef gets the glory and we get fed. Isn't that amazing? How kind of God. A few just quick thoughts about how God is at work when we gather. Think about this. When we gather, Jesus says, there am I among them. He manifests his presence in our midst, Matthew 18. When we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, the word of Christ dwells richly in us, Colossians 3, 16. When we share the Lord's Supper together, God is granting us participation in the body and blood of Christ, 1 Corinthians 10. When the word is read and preached and proclaimed, God convicts and converts the lost. If you want to think more about that, there's an amazing picture of that in Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel is called by God to preach to a valley full of dead bones. And when Ezekiel preaches to them, what happens to the bones? Someone tell me, what happens? They come to life. Man, that is cool. And that happens when the word is proclaimed right here. And God is doing that. Only God gives spiritual life. And God's Holy Spirit builds up the body. 
as the different spirit-filled members use their spirit-given gifts to serve and minister to one another. Brian Chappell summarizes it well when he says, God is not only the chief audience of our worship. By his word and spirit, he is also the true speaker, singer, and prayer. When God's word is summarized in the songs in your church and when the priorities of his word are prayed in the prayers, God's spirit is speaking and ministering to you. That is an amazing thing. This Sunday, tomorrow is Sunday, uh, thousands of people will gather just a few blocks from my church building. They will be gathering to see uh, the New Orleans Saints lose to the Tennessee Titans. <laughs> and uh, for many of them, that'll be the highlight of, of their week or their month or maybe even their year. And that's, that's fine. Uh, that, there's, there's no problem with enjoying a football game. But what for them is a, is a highlight is going to be a fan, Right? They're, they're turning up and they're, and they're watching something. And you know what? They don't realize that just a few blocks away in a pretty modest, plain-looking brick building, something way more of eternal significance is happening. God has brought together about 150 regular old folks to sing his praises and to hear his word preached. And it's going to happen the same thing at University Baptist Church tomorrow and Chaffee Baptist Church if the Lord gives us time. If he, if he doesn't come back today, then Lord willing, we'll gather tomorrow. And God will be the one that gathers us. I have a bunch of other things I want to say about this, and I'm going to try to say them quickly. Y'all got, got time for a few more quick implications? Okay. Six things. Why it's so important for us to remember that God is the one who gathers us. Number one. It helps us appreciate how our corporate worship is Trinitarian. You already heard me reference this. The whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, is involved in bringing us together for his glory. God the Father assembles those who are united to Christ. And we worship in the power of his Holy Spirit. This is different than every other religion. Other religions have the concept of worship or paying tribute to a God... And it's something that you must do. You've got to figure out how to honor this God or, or give him something from your life or, or please him. Bring an offering. Bring incense. Do good works. Do good deeds. Christianity is different. In Christianity, God himself has shown us grace. And he gives us new life by his Holy Spirit. None of us have lived in a way that, that God requires of us. We've all strayed like lost sheep. And God sent his son, the only perfect person who's ever lived. Jesus of Nazareth lived the perfect life of honoring and pleasing God. He's the only true worshiper who's ever lived, who always worshiped God with his whole life. And yet, though he didn't deserve to die, he died not for his sins, but for ours. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, so that whoever turns from your sin and trusts in him, can be saved and forgiven by God. And Jesus didn't just die on a cross. He rose again three days later, conquering sin and death, and crucially, giving his Holy Spirit now to all who trust in him. That is why we can now worship God, not because of anything we've done. Our worship comes from the triune God. So that's the first implication. Corporate worship is Trinitarian. Second, corporate worship is a gift of God's grace. 
Appreciating God's initiative helps safeguard us from a man-centered approach to worship where worship becomes one more thing that we do to try to earn God's favor. Maybe if I come to church this week, then God will listen to my prayers. Maybe if I come to church, then things will start going better in my life. No, that's not Christianity. God gathers us as those who are undeserving. I'm not worthy of coming, but God is going to bring me in his grace. Worship is a gift. It's not something we do to get on the right side of God. We're already on God's right side because we're in the Son. So he gathers us as adopted sons and daughters. He already loves us as much in Christ as he ever will love us, which is infinitely. Um, Third, recognizing God's initiative helps us be aware of the whole church body. So it helps us remember that the worship service isn't just for us, right? God's not just gathered me. He's gathered every, everyone else. He's doing good in their lives. I'm not, it's not, I'm not here for a personal portal of praise. This is why I appreciate churches that keep the lights on. Because when the lights are on, who can you see? Everyone else that God has gathered. And you know what? Maybe I'm doing okay in my spiritual life. But there's someone here who's not. And God's building him or her up and encouraging the weak and the downtrodden. And so... Knowing that God, it's his design and his intent to bring all those other people there, that, that helps us appreciate that church isn't just for me. It's for them too. And fourth, very similar point, it should help us treasure our fellow church members. Y'all ever been tempted to be annoyed with another church member? Get irritated with someone? Misunderstand someone? Feel misunderstood by someone? Am I the only one? Here's the thing. If God has brought them into your church, then he wants you to be a part of a church family with those people. Even if they're awkward. Even if they've got disagreements. Because here's the thing. They have chosen to love me. With my warts and my awkwardness and my, you know, rough edges. That, so, oh, they have chosen to, to lay aside all that and love me. Maybe I should get to work loving them in the same way. Because God has brought us all together. Number five, since God takes the initiative, what we do when we meet is up to him. He decides. It's his prerogative. And this is great news. This is just great news because we don't have to come up with our own ideas of what should we do when we gather. What, what would be a good thing to do this week, Pastor Blake? What do you think we ought to do to try to get people in the door? Well, I heard about another church that's doing X, Y, Z. No, we don't have to go down that road. God's been so kind to tell us what to do. He sets the menu for the banquet. Or he's like the director who sets the script. In, in this sense, corporate worship is much more like Shakespearean drama than improv comedy. Think about it. In improv, both, both require actors. But in improv, the actors also have to come up with a story. It's a blank slate. Someone in the crowd says something silly, you know, cheese puffs. Okay, now we've got to come up with a skit about cheese puffs, right? So, and the success of the skit depends on how creative the actors can be in coming up with something about cheese puffs. Well, corporate worship's not like that. We don't have to come up with it because much more like in Shakespearean drama, the master director has given us a script. In, in Shakespeare, the actors still have to be faithful. They turn up, they need to faithfully interpret the play that's been written by the master. 
but the words are all set down. So God has told us in his word what he calls us to do when we approach him in worship. Our job is to be faithful. And then six, the, the sixth thing, finally, recognizing that God takes the initiative in worship means that we should gather to receive his blessing. We should gather expectantly. We should look forward to church. Yes, it's true that the worship service involves sacrificing ourselves and offering ourselves to God in obedience. But it begins with hearing from God and receiving from him. We gather as needy, hungry children in utter dependence on our all-sufficient Father. And so if you've ever gotten to the end of the week and you feel thirsty for the replenishing waters of the Sunday service, that's, that's good. That's normal. We should long, oh, it would, be, it would be so encouraging to my soul to be in church. That's not a sign of weakness. That's how God has made us to be. That, that's, that's a sign of spiritual health if you find yourself looking forward to church. Because as Blake even hinted at in his opening comments, whenever we gather, it's a foretaste of the great assembly that is to come. The great ecclesia, when all of us will meet and our thirst will be satisfied forever by the one who himself is the living water. And so corporate worship now is a dress rehearsal for the wedding feast of the Lamb. When we will all behold the bride, the whole universal body of Christ, and we will behold the bridegroom. And by his grace, we will give him the worship he deserves forever.